Welcome to the Company of Believers podcast. We hope you will be blessed and encouraged by this message. Jesus bless you. excited about this evening and the next upcoming evenings. Um, it's been a little bit and Brother John talked to me about coming and being a part of just teaching on, on basically the Bible, on the fivefold ministry as we call it, on the apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors. And I'm really excited about doing that. I've never publicly actually taught on apostles. And tonight will be the first time that I touch that. And I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it because the more I studied it and read it, it it's, just, it's just amazing the simplicity of the gospel. A lot of tonight will be more about what it's not in our preconceived understanding than what it is. Uh, it's just amazing how simple the Word of God is. If you really want to know what's right and what's wrong, it, it's right there for us in, in fine print so that the most simple mind can gather it and, and, and keep it. Uh, tonight we're going to talk and teach on Apostle, the office of Apostle, and what that actually looks like inside of the church today. Not today in, in the day we live in, but inside of the church period. Its function, um, how it operates, what its responsibilities are. And so we're going to touch on that. This is by no means meant to be an all-encompassing, all-encompassing. That does not sound right coming out of my mouth. All-inclusive teaching. Uh, I, I'm going to try to get on one thread. And, and run it out for this evening and tomorrow night my friend Jason Townsend from Florida is going to teach on the office of the apostle and its role inside of uh, the prophet ah, the, the role of the prophet in the church in the New Testament church and then Tuesday night I'm going to talk about the office of the evangelist and teacher and pastor brother John's going to do some appointed time uh, those are two of the more normal and accepted offices that are more readily understood to some degree than the other two and the other three. And so anyway, if you got your Bibles, I'm going to get started. Uh, I asked Brother John this morning how long I could talk or how long he wanted me to talk, and he said, as the Spirit led you. So I did. Uh, I want to get started and make sure that there's no way for me to teach everything there could be taught about this in the four hours that I've got tonight. And <laughs> just kidding. Those bad preaching jokes, isn't it? I'm going to try and lighten it up from this morning a little bit. When I, when I sat down and really started studying and, and just preparing to talk about this with y'all, um, I just, you know, did the basic thing. I got out my concordance and, and looked up apostle, apostles, and, you know, and I just started right there at the first verse in the New Testament. And doing that, uh, God began to speak, speak to me in, in a way that I, I really liked, and so I'm going to run with that. 
in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. This is going to be in verse 1 and 2. This is where we actually find the word apostle mentioned the first time in the New Testament. And most everybody in here, when you begin to hear that rhetoric, apostle, uh, specifically that, there's even more room given or allowance given for prophet than there is apostle. But as soon as most of us hear the word apostle, we all start to cringe. Uh, and a lot of negative things come in our mind because of perverse examples that have been given and, and the abuse of those terms without the validity of the gospel behind them. And I feel the same way too. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that the truth of the word and the office is invalid because some people do it wrong and abuse it for their own. It doesn't, it's like the rainbow, right? We're going to not believe in the in the promise that is attached to the rainbow because the way certain groups want to use it to promote their own agendas that are perverse and against the word of God are we going to throw the rainbow out and make that a taboo subject or are we just actually going to believe what God says about it and so that needs to be adapted to all of the things that the devil has tried to pervert and rob us of so we can actually realize the benefit of them yeah it's just simplicity so in Matthew chapter 10, I'm just going to read it. I, I'm going to jump around in so many different translations. You're just going to have to guess which one it is. <laughs> I, I got one of these smart things, and I've got, I don't know, like 30 Bibles in, in you know, three different languages, and I bounce back continuously trying to find and get understanding. So I'm not very fixed on one particular uh, translation. None of them are perfect. The Word of God's perfect. The way man interpreted it is not. Uh, so the word of God's right and true and tried and tested. So we, you know, that's how my mind works. But in Matthew chapter 10, we're reading verse 1 and 2. It says, Jesus gathered his 12 disciples and imparted, them, imparted to them authority to cast out demons and to heal every sickness and every disease. Now these are the names of the first 12 apostles. And I'm going to stop right there. It's pretty interesting because right here is where the first distinction is made between the disciples and apostles. And, and you know, this, this word disciple in the Greek, it's pretty simple. Everybody understands what that one means. It just means a learner, a pupil, a student. But when he goes to verse 2, Matthew actually clarifies the difference between the 12 now a few minutes before they were just disciples after the transaction of Jesus giving them authority and actually ordaining them in this power and calling them into this office of apostle there's a change because apostle means a delegate an ambassador or sent one that is the simplistic definition of what an apostle is it is somebody who is being ordained or, or sent with a mission I mean, that's a pretty simple definition. There's nothing weird about that. And so Jesus recognizes these 12, the calling of God on their life, the purpose of God on their life, and he says, you're not just disciples. You have graduated from just being a learner to somebody I can actually trust to carry out a mission on my behalf. 
He didn't recognize them as fully mature saints and, and men beyond reproach and perfect in every area of their life. He just says, you've matured enough to the place that I can actually put responsibility on you to represent me properly to where I'm about to send you. And it's pretty amazing because Matthew's writing this, you know, and he, he, he's looking back in hindsight. You know, Matthew's writing this from his point of view, guided by the Holy Ghost. But it's still interpreted through his lens of what happened. And so, I, you know, I was thinking about this. Matthew's actually looking back in hindsight, and I, I don't believe by any, any means or measures that he actually understood what was happening in that moment he was standing in that he's writing about. When this happened, I don't believe he fully understood what was happening. And most of the times when we enter into the calling of God that has always been our purpose for creation, it's rare that we actually understand what's really beginning to happen. We just are taking baby steps of obedience, and all of a sudden God says, I can actually trust you because you've followed me out of the pact to a level that most people are not willing to do. So here is the calling that you have. Here is the responsibility that I'm about to give you. Here is your mission. And I think Matthew, at the end of his life, when he's writing this, he looks back, and now he's looking back with understanding, and it's almost like this is where it began. That day, when he laid his hands on us, or he spoke those words of authority over our life, that's where it all began. And it's like I almost feel like that's when he, uh, he looks back and he understood, I now recognize where this began. And so he, he writes it down that way. And uh, it's amazing because in chapter 9, Matthew writes up to this point. At the end of chapter 9, you can actually see he, he begins to show the sequence of events leading up to the ordaining of the 12 apostles. So if you go to chapter 9, 35 through 37, I'm just going to read it real quick. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary, scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. When I was looking at that, it kind of... I mean, I know I've read through this a lot of times, but never looking at it in this, in this particular way for this purpose. But it was amazing to look at what was happening before he ordained the ten. Because just a few words before, he's actually saying, the harvest is there. I see sheep without a shepherd. I've got to send somebody. He didn't say, I need to establish people on thrones. I need to exalt these, these men, I need to esteem these other people in front of the eyes of everybody else. That is not where he's coming from when he, or when he begins to ordain the 12 apostles. He's actually coming out of, a, out of a movement of compassion in himself for the sheep that had no shepherd. And he looked around and he said, you can represent me because you're willing to be more than just a hearer and a learner. And I know that I can trust you to go and, and feed the sheep that are wandering without anybody to care for. 
And so you actually see him ordaining these people. When you look at verse 9 and bleeding into chapter 10, which, of course, y'all all know there's no chapters in, in, these, in these letters. This is added for us to understand and flip through the Bible and get to, get to stuff. So this is not a break. That's a constant flow of writing. And so when we understand that, it's really awesome because we see Jesus is moved by compassion for us and for the people. To the point he's willing to move on the hearts of men and women to ordain them and send them to the generation that we live in. And so when he does that, the result is he separates the twelve and he ordains them, he commissions them, and he gives them authority. He gives them authority to go and carry out the mission that he's given them. Remember this morning I talked about everything that Jesus asked us to do. He actually equips us and deposits in us the thing that we need to walk in obedience to what he's asking from, asking from us. And so he gave these men the authority to carry out the very task he was ordaining them to do. But when you look at this and you begin to go back to chapter 10... If we understand, this is the first time that we're actually seeing an office of the five-fold ministry represented in the new church. Then we need to look at the, the, the whole counsel that he gives them in chapter 10. Because he ordains them and then he begins to speak to them about what it is they're actually to do and how they're to do it. He's speaking to the twelve apostles right now. It doesn't mean that we're excluded from the things that follow, but it was a specific commandment that he was actually placing on them to walk and carry out as they were being ordained for the mission. And so, let's just look at it for a second. In, in, in chapter 5, it says that these 12, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of, of the house of Israel. He was very specific about their mission. And right here, he's identifying the who and the where. And that was specific to this 12 standing there at this moment. He later would send Paul to be a Gentile, uh, the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a specific calling and a specific mission and a specific people to minister to in specific places. And so that is something that changes dealing with the individual that God is commissioning and sending out in this position. When you get to verse 5 or verse 7 and 8, this is what it says. He tells them how. As, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. This is, this is the how. This is the operation that he wants them to walk in as they're being sent. He's sending them to actually preach the gospel, teach the, the kingdom of heaven, and to manifest the truth of what they're saying by the authority and the power of God, by healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. Because the kingdom of God does not just consist in word, it consists in power. And so he, he's telling them, this is what it's supposed to look like for you when you go on your mission. 
You remember what it looked like for me in chapter 9? When I went around doing these very things that I'm now giving you the same authority to walk and do? I've given you the example that you're supposed to follow. And see, the Bible says that Jesus is our chief apostle, Hebrews chapter 3. He is the plumb line. And, and where we so often get sideways is that we want men to be our plumb line when Jesus has laid out a, a, an absolute perfect example of what this is supposed to be. And so anything that begins to deviate from the example that he's given, then we ought to know that's not the pattern that God has laid out for us. And that man has, has, has intertwined or, or he's, inter, he, he's positioned himself in a way that's taken us off the pattern that we see right here. In verse chapter 9, he goes on and he tells them, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. And he, and he lists a lot more. But he begins to tell them, this is the, this is, this is going to be the way that you live. This is going to be the way that you walk. It will be a, a work of faith by going. You won't go with the mindset that you're going to tend to yourself. You're going to do the work that I've called you to do. You're going to do it the way that I've called you to do. And by doing that, you will see supernatural manifestation of provision for you. And this is, this is interesting because he does this right here. And then later you look at the life of Paul. And, and I was talking with, with uh, Brother Kyle, my friend. Paul, when he had means from other churches, he preached the gospel and did nothing else. When he didn't have money, he went and made tents so he could preach the gospel. So when you read 9 through 15 and, and how he prescribed for them to go forth, you see Paul did whatever was necessary to carry out the mission. He says, I robbed other churches to give you the gospel for free. And when there wasn't those means to take care of himself and the people that was with him, he worked by his own hands so as not to be a burden to the people that he was sent to. And it's not that he didn't have a right being sent into those situations, but he wasn't just being sent as an apostle. Uh, I'll talk about that on Tuesday. Most of the times when Paul entered into a place, he wasn't entering in as an apostle. He was entering in as an evangelist to places that had never had the gospel. He was walking in a different office, even though he was an apostle, and he would be an apostle to those people, but more times than not, he was entering in in those moments as a pure evangelist, establishing the kingdom of God. And he didn't want to do anything that would take away the right for him to tell them the truth of the gospel or influence them or discourage them. So Paul spoke to that, but he also walked in more than one office. And he danced back and forth between those things on what is right. But you see right here, Jesus is, is, is giving them this provision. The, the apostolic work of the gospel, or the kingdom of God, it's apostolic 100% in nature. And, and there again, because of the use of those terms and the abuse of that language, it, it makes us all throw up defenses. But right here, you see the very beginnings of, of, the, of the work of apostles, and it's in a real simple form. Go preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out devils. It, I mean, it's right there. 
And it was all born out of the desire for the sheep of God that had no shepherd to be cared for and to be led into green pastures and to be led into a place of rest and to be led into a place of blessing. I remember the first time that, that God spoke to me in this way. I, w- I was in a church, and I didn't really want to be there. I wasn't in agreement with how most things were going. And I had my mind up on how I was going to talk before I even got up. And, and I got up, and, and I, was, I was ready. I, it was, if y'all thought this morning was tough, you didn't want to be there that day because I was ready for killing everybody. Everybody was going to be in hell the first three minutes. And, it, and look, that wasn't right. But I stood up, and I was already decided on how this was going to go. And I stood up, and I looked over the church, and it was full. The church was full of people. And everybody looked great. There wasn't an empty seat hardly in the house. And I stood up, and I'm fixing to light it up. And as I'm standing there looking at them before I begin to speak, I, 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 God opened up my ears. And he let me hear the cry and the despair and the agony and the hurt of the people sitting in front of me. I physically heard the wailing of souls. And when I heard that, it instantly crushed me. Because I was mad because they weren't doing it the right way. And the right way wasn't being enforced. And so, by gosh, I'm just going to burn the whole thing down. And that's not, that's not the heart of God. Because when I looked at them and, I, and God let me hear what he heard when he looked at them, it crushed my heart. And I said, I'm standing in front of everybody before I preach, and, and I said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And I heard as clear as day the voice of Father saying, that's okay, I'm going to send you. And at that moment where I was standing in my spiritual life and in the language and the understanding that I had, I instantly thought, you're fishing to make me be a pastor in the United States of America? Are you, you know, that, that's what I understood in that moment by that statement. Because that's, that was the only language that was permitted in the world that I walked in. Now, in Mexico, we have an apostolic work to its core. Everything we do is apostolic. We go into places that never had the gospel. We preach the gospel. People get born again. We begin to visit people. People begin to get born again. Their neighbors, And all of a sudden, churches grow. You, you raise up elders. You establish pastors. And, and, and we function that way. And we actually walk in an apostolic role with them as the work grows. It's 100% apostolic, but we don't use that language. We just do the work. <laughs> because nobody needs the language because they've never heard the gospel. And they don't have all this back this backstory that we're trying to, to change in their mind of what the, the gospel is supposed to be. So we don't really have to address those things. We just do it. And what I didn't understand is that God was actually going to send me to do a mission. And I had no understanding of that because I just wasn't there in my own personal place of understanding. So when I say Matthew didn't recognize what was happening in that moment, I absolutely believe Matthew, Matthew had no clue what was really going on and the fullness of what he was being anointed into. But I do understand that it was born out of a place of compassion 
for people not having a shepherd. See, the gospel's simple, and it, it, God's love and care for us is so great that he's so trying to give us everything we need so we can actually realize the truth of who he is and see the fullness of his words manifested in our life, in our families. And we, we sometimes, we so allow the devil to take away the real significance of the truth of the word of God because people pervert it over here and people distort it over here and we get so gun-shy that we just get as far away from those things as possible and we live robbed of the plan of God. And, and what we got to do is recognize that if it's in this Bible and there's clarity to it, we need to submit to that so we can begin to see the hand of God move in our life like he intends. You know, in, in 16 through 42 in Matthew 10, he gives them their, their task. He tells them how to do it. He tells them about the provision. He tells them to expect to be provided for. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 16, he actually goes to a whole different area. And it gets uncomfortable. Because he tells them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the, whole, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up to brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all, of, by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now he's, this is part of the commissioning ceremony. He, he just got done giving them authority and power and telling them you're going to go do this. Oh, and by the way, this is how this is going to go for you. That's called thinning the crowd out. You know, this is one discourse, y'all. This is, you're anointed as an apostle, however that looked in that moment. I'm using those words, but that's what was happening. He was anointing, he was, he was sanctioning them, he was commissioning them, and he's telling them how, when, and where, and then he tells them, and by the way, this is going to be the result for you at the end. And we know by history, 11 out of the 12 were, were murdered and martyred. And they tried to do the last one several times and couldn't. So, you know, it's interesting when we look at what Jesus puts right here as, as an Apostles' Creed, it really gets pretty interesting on, on how it could go and probably will go. But as I have gotten accustomed to saying in these days, Almost always in the Word of God, there's an anomaly. So we can't just fix in on, on one part. The 11 did get martyred, but there was that anomaly. He didn't. So we can't say if it doesn't look like this 100% across the board, then that's not an apostle or this is not an apostle. Because he always throws in an anomaly, so you just can't be dogmatic. 
I, I mean, I'm finding these anomalies everywhere I go in the Scripture. And it doesn't make me want to deconstruct my faith. It just makes me understand, I don't understand as much as I thought I did. So I need to be real careful about what I'm dogmatic on. I'm dogmatic on Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth, and without him nobody's getting the Father. I'm, pretty, I'm dogmatic on that one. But pretty much everything else I'm kind of backing off of with a great de degree of severity. It says right here, or I wrote down, it says, we'll see, the scripture we see the life of the apostles come with great authority and great hardships. Now I want to just start kind of moving towards what it actually looked like as they begin to function. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 15 and 26, 15 through 26, A father begins to speak through Jesus to the disciples, the apostles, and he tells them, he says, you know, go and wait for the promise of the father. And he sends them to Jerusalem, and, and they do what they're supposed to do. But I want to read how it's phrased. I didn't write that one down, so let me get to it. It says right here in chapter 1, In verse 3 it says, or in verse 2 it says, until, chapter 1 verse 2, it says, until the day in which he was taken up, after through the Holy Ghost he had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. He, he, that one phrase right there, I was reading that the other day and it's pretty interesting because it's, it's confirmed by several other phrases just like it further into the New Testament. That he, he, you see right there, there's an interaction between Jesus and, and, and the apostles. Like, he actually begins to give them direct commandments. He begins to give them revelation that other people don't have. And that sounds weird because, there again, there's been a lot of perversion with verses just like this to back it up. There's nothing we can add to the scripture, anybody. Anything that God speaks to you in the secret place or anything that somebody wants to prophesy to you that contradicts the word of God, well, then we know that's not the word of God that's being spoke to you or being spoke through you. The word of God is unchanging and is not going to be added to or taken away from. And so anytime that there's some revelation that comes to you or there's some kind of uh, supernatural visitation with some type of new ordinance. If it's not backed by the Word of God, and if it's contrary to what Jesus commanded us to live by, then that's got to be rejected. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, I, I hear God saying that he's got a new wife for you, and my wife is sitting right there, Okay, I don't care how many angels showed up at your doorstep wearing a golden sash. That's not God speaking. If anybody comes and says by revelation that there's another way to get to the Father except through Jesus, well, I don't even got to consider that. You're wrong. I don't got to be spiritual. You're just wrong. 
But there are mysteries that Father unlocks to the apostles to, 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 to reveal to them a deeper truth or, or a more excellent way to help them know how to walk with God and to bring clarity to the order of God. And that's played out all through Scripture, and I'm going to show you some verses about it. But you see that beginning right there in just chapter 1 of Acts where he actually speaks to that. And I talked about it for a few minutes this morning. You know, they went into the upper room. They began to pray. They got into unity. They, they got forgiveness flowing. And they actually allowed the love of God in them to be manifested one to another. And all of that was perfect and awesome. But they did not get the pouring out of the Holy Ghost until order was established. So you begin to see right here that beyond just going and preaching the gospel and healing the sick and casting out devils, the role of an apostle is to establish godly order according to what has been spoken or prophesied. Because after they became unified and were moving in the spirit of the Lord in love, Peter had the understanding there's something missing. We're not in order because there has not been one to take the place of the one who died. Because it had been spoken. It had been prophesied. The prophet had said, one must take his place. And so you see, uh, you know, I have no idea how Brother Jason is going to talk about the prophet tomorrow. But right here you see two offices interacting with each other. One prophesied the word of the Lord. And the other, the apostle, actually discerned it's now time to put that in effect. And to bring order in this area because it was spoken and we're lacking in this and i feel like we can't advance until we come into obedience to what this says you know and that seems like a very simplistic thing like i said this morning but the result of simplistic obedience and order being established was the pouring out of the spirit of god was 120 with tongues of fire on their head the end result of that was 3,000 people being born again. So order matters. And so right here you begin to see the apostle establishing order through the revelation of understanding of how to apply the spoken word of God. And so you see prophet and apostle working together, even though the man who spoke those words wasn't standing right there in that moment. But it was still the prophet who spoke it. And it was up to the apostle to put it into effect in the family. See, the apostle has the role in, in the family as a father to establish order. To see what is out of order and fix it. To discern when is the time to do that. In Acts chapter 2, You, you find, uh, we spoke about this verse this morning from a different angle, but I'm, I'm going to touch on it for just a minute. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you find it says right here that every believer was devoted to the following the teachings of the apostle. And at this moment, there, the apostles didn't have any letters. There wasn't the book of Peter. There wasn't the book of John. There wasn't the book of Matthew. None of those things existed at that moment. What they were was what Paul would later write, a living epistle. They were men who had spent time with Jesus. They had been commissioned by him. And so 
when the when the family begin to to grow and people begin to come in you see that one of the roles of the apostle one of his responsibilities was to establish the family in sound fundamental truth that they received from Jesus and so you see that they took time speaking to the people about everything they had received and learned by walking with Jesus Jesus was and always will be the plumb line. And they realized it was their responsibility to do what? To lay foundation. To lay the foundation where Christ is the cornerstone. And they gave themselves to that because for the believers to be devoted to following the teachings of the apostles, that means the apostles made themselves available to share everything they had received as father, as a father would with his children. And they spent time with them, not just in a church service or in the temple, but around tables, walking in the market. And every opportunity that they could, they imparted foundational truth to the people who were coming into the family of God. That is also one of the, the roles and the, the works of the apostle in the new church. You know, one of the things I believe they, they establish is what you find in Hebrews 6, which is the fundamentals of the gospel. You go to chapter 4 of Acts. It gets interesting, and this makes everybody uncomfortable. Because in Acts chapter 4, verse 35, we find the apostles filling another position or, or walking in another role. It says, they laid them down, talking about the offerings and money given, they laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made at, and distribution was made unto every man according to, as he had need. Now nobody likes that one. But what was happening in the new church when that was was being birthed, the apostles, they they were in such a place of integrity and honor and trust with the people that were around them that the people actually confided and trusted in them to do right with the finances not so they could be rich not so they could could increase themselves but so that they could distribute to every man as they had need it wasn't that they were given to the man so he could live in a mansion they were given to him because they trusted that the heart of father was in him and he was filled full of compassion and he would give to everybody as they had need and you know what the end result of that was? There was no poor among them. So there's some simplicity in the gospel that sometimes we don't want to be there. And I'm not saying that that is exactly what it should look like today in our world. But that is how they operate at that moment. And more than saying that's what should be happening in every church and every family, I, I don't know if it should be. I mean, to me, that's weird, too. <laughs> but it is what they did. But the more important element that's being manifested right here is the level of trust that they had 
with the people that were around them. And do you know to have that amount of trust with the people who you're living with and sitting around a table with every day and every night? Do you know the type of life you've got to be living around somebody for them to just trust you with their money and give it to you and say, here it is, you decide what's right with it, and they're spending every waking moment with you if they're not working? That means they were living right. That means their life was above reproach. That means they were more than willing to trust him because they saw nothing conflicting in their lives. And it doesn't mean they were perfect. It just means that they had established that their hearts were for the people. And there again, there's that anomaly named Judas who had the money bag who stole. There's always that stinking anomaly. And sometimes we use the anomaly as an excuse on why not to walk in trust of the gospel and the word of God. Judas doesn't erase the good of the other 11 and now 12. And if we use that as an excuse on why not to walk in obedience to the simplicity of the gospel, then all we're doing is robbing ourselves. Because for every one that's bad, my math says there's 11 that's got to be good. And good is, you know, that's relative to the moment you're standing in. <laughs> you see, it's important to notice these things. So we need to sit down and look at the, at the Word of God and see how the Word of God has established for us to be governed, governed and how we're supposed to respond to that. It says right here in, the, in chapter 5, because it gets more uncomfortable even still. Well, not in chapter 5. It does in chapter 5. But in verse 12, the first thing is I just put signs and wonders. Because it says in verse 12, it says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders. One of the things that accompanies the signs of an apostle is signs and wonders. Is the manifested power of God. It is a supernatural backing of you that says... I really am sent here by the Lord. In verse 1, we find the whole scenario of Ananias and Sapphira. It goes back to, to uh, chapter 4. They wanted to get in on the laying the money down at the apostles' feet. They wanted to be esteemed as people who were great givers and people who were, you know, they were humble and meek and, and only cared about the people, and it was not truth in their heart. And so they actually brought these funds and laid them at the feet one right after another with the sole purpose of lying and putting the front on. And, and when they did that, we see a, a, a very... A very scary power of the authority and the governmental, the governmental power that the, the apostles walked in. That they were judicially equipped by God for judgment. And nobody wants to think that another person had, can have that much authority. But the scripture says they do. Jesus looked right at Peter and said, Whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. He told him that. He said, whatever you forgive in heaven on earth will be forgiven in heaven. Whatever you charge will be charged in heaven. He looked him right in the face and said those straight words. 
And so Peter is sitting in this situation, and, and they bring in, and by the Holy Ghost, he knows they're lying. Why have you put it in your heart to lie? You have not lied to man but the Holy Ghost. And they drop dead, one right after another. Because he judged their deceit, he judged their lie, and he called them into account. And what you see is the Spirit of God backing the authority that he gave the man. I I remember one day being with all of our missionaries in a group, and we had an extremely heated discussion over this topic. I believe that he actually had the authority to do what he did. That doesn't mean he should have done what he did, but he had the authority given to him by God. And when he exercised that authority, God was obligated to back that authority. I'm not so sure he couldn't have done something different. But he had the authority to say and do what he did. And the result is, you see God saying, I validate your authority. And they dragged them both out, and they buried both of them. Nowhere in there does it say, and let's just read it so I don't say it wrong, because it's a pretty important statement. He said, after it was sold, in verse 4, after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Do you know that nowhere in there did he say God tells you to fall down dead now? When he made that statement to him, he was actually exercising his judicial authority given to him by God as, a, as an apostle. And the next result is the judgment. They, found out that they fell down dead in their sin. And so you see right there a, 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 an authority given that is very powerful. And it has to be very, uh, it has to be handled with great humility. You see Paul in in, in Acts in another, further down the road, he's actually preaching the gospel to a very important man. And this man's counselor is trying to defy everything that comes out of Paul's mouth. He's trying to disrupt the gospel that Paul is preaching. And Paul turns on him and tells him, you're going to be blind, you deceiver. And the man went blind. He went blind because Paul said it. See, there's an authority that has been given to apostles to exercise and to judge. And if they use it, God validates it. When I was in Mexico, we walked into a village that had no gospel. We were invited to go and pray for a demon-possessed girl. And, and this girl had been locked up for I don't know, nine or ten years or something in a room. I mean, she is stark raving mad. If she escapes from a room, she'll attack her mom and dad, bite them, and then she takes off into the woods and, and just runs through the woods until they can find her and put her back in the room. For ten years, she's lived locked in a room until she escapes. They take us there. Me and my wife, all my kids, they were little. We walk in there. We, we preach the gospel to them, and we pray for the girl, and God sets her free. After 10 years in a room. We come back a week later, and there's like 15 or 20 people waiting from that village for us to get there to pray for them because of the miracle that had happened in the girl. 
I mean, they, all the sick were there waiting for us to get out of our truck at the hour we told them we were going to be back. I walked into there seeing that girl free with her hair combed in her right mind, and the daddy was there. He wasn't there when we went the first time. And in my, in my thoughts, in my understanding, everybody's wishing to get born again. This is a brand new church today. The problem was I looked over into the corner, and there was a, ta- a table full of idols. Candles burning, the whole thing. I mean, pure idolatry. And so I'm feeling so emboldened by the miracle. And, and I didn't understand the authority or the power that I walked in. I was ignorant of the degree that God actually backed me and validated my words. I knew that my words had certain weight. And if I pray for you, I believe you're going to get healed. I believe that. But I didn't understand the full extent of how much God would back the words out of my mouth. And I began to preach to that daddy, and I said, you know, God's healed your daughter. Yes, thank you. And we went through that whole thing, and I said, Jesus did it. I preached the gospel to him. And right before I'm finished, I turned, and I said, all of these are demons, and you got to get rid of them. you got to get rid of them. We need to burn them. We need to throw them out right now. And in my mind, it's a foregone conclusion. He's going to do whatever I tell him because his little girl's free. He looked me right in the face. He said, I ain't doing that. And I, it just kind of was like getting slapped. He said, I'm not doing that. And I said, you have to. He said, those are my moms or my dads, my grandparents. I'm not getting rid of those. Those are my idols. You can't come into my house and tell me what to do. And he was right. But I felt so aggressive. And I, and I don't know that it was wrong. But I looked at him and I said, you will either get rid of them or I will leave. And before I get out of your town, your daughter will be demon-possessed again. To some extent, I said those words. And I didn't even blink. And I got in my truck because he said, help yourself. We'll see you later. I mean, we got, we got 26 people waiting to get prayer standing right there. And I just turned and walked. Got my family. I got in my truck and I drove out. A few days later, I got a call from somebody who was in the next village. And they told me, do you know that by the time your truck got to the other side of the village, his daughter went stark raving mad again and attacked him? Before your truck got out of the village. We're so used to believing that there's no authority in in our words as sons and daughters of God. So we never equate how much authority really is at stake in the words of somebody who has been given authority by God to operate in an office in the family of God. And we need to understand that these things aren't fairy tales or myths that went away. So we, we, we criticize other, other groups because they say this ain't for today, and we believe it is. But when I start laying out the full counsel of gospel, it's amazing how many people who say tongues are for today, but this ain't. I'm okay with some shucking and bucking and some shouting, but don't talk to me about that part of it. That don't happen no more. That went out with the apostles. We really do. do we do that or don't we? We do. We really do. Even if we don't intend to, subconsciously, we just work that kind of stuff right on out. The result of what happened when Ananias and Sapphira fell dead was the church didn't fall apart. The church grew. Fear came on their hearts. And everybody decided, 
whoa, this is a little bit realer than I thought. And everybody tightened up a little bit, and great respect came on the outside world towards the family of God because they realized this ain't no joke. When they speak, things happen. People get healed and people die. And it caused great awe, and the church of God grew. Another thing you find in Acts chapter 6, and you begin to see now, and this is interesting because you got the 12 apostles, they're all in Jerusalem. And basically you just got one church, it's really big, but it's one church. And you have the 12 apostles there, and, and they're, all, they're, they're basically operating in dual roles. They're apostles, but they're, they're really functioning as elders over the church of Jerusalem. Because it hasn't begun to unroll yet into their, real, their, their complete roles. So they're all in one place. And they're basically functioning as elders over the church that's there. And, and all of a sudden in Acts chapter 6, you know, it's funny because you, all of a sudden you read this, they were feeding the poor. There was no needy among them, and you find them feeding the poor, and you find them feeding the widows and taking care of everybody, and there's a big dispute, and there's a fight. This, this race of people are not getting as much as this race of people, and it's just a big mess. And so they bring this, this ball of confusion and, and angst to the, the apostles, and they present it to them. And the apostles actually come back to them and give them a solution on how to rectify the situation. Go choose seven men who meet the qualifications. And so you see the apostles, now they're not just teaching, they're not just healing the sick, they're not just judging sin in their midst, they're actually solving problems in the church that they can't solve among themselves. That has the, the, the potential to be a fracture. And the apostles go away, they come back with an answer, and say, this is what we have decided is a solution to this. And so you see the apostles actually, they bring counsel and they give direction when they're, in, when they're in the midst of conflict or when the church is in the midst of conflict. They actually come up with a God-led plan on how to go forward as family. You get to Acts chapter 15, you find a similar situation with a different subject. Paul's preaching to the Gentiles you got Jews coming down who were born again who are trying to enforce the laws of Moses on these brand new believers who don't know the law of Moses. And they're telling them, you got to get circumcised, you got to do this, you got to do that. And if you don't do that, you're not really saved. And it's such a conflict that Paul and the other believers, they all go back to Jerusalem where the apostles are and the elders. And they present the, the, the issue to the apostle and the elders. And the apostle and the elders. They come up with a solution for them of what is necessary for the new believers, the Gentiles, to obey out of the law of Moses. And it was four things. And so you actually see them giving counsel and bringing solution to problems. And they were expected to have the answers and to walk in God-ordained wisdom and to walk in humility and actually have an ear towards Father to hear what His will was in situations that were, that were really potential in destroying what God was trying to do. 
And uh, I'm going to move forward some. In Acts chapter 1, there's another interesting dynamic that's put on display by the apostles. And this might be boring and tedious, but it's necessary to understand where they came from, what they did, what their responsibilities are, and how they function. And see, when we begin to see the things that they did and what they were called to operate in, then we begin to understand the necessity to see these five-fold offices manifested in our church families. And when we don't have them, we continue in dysfunction. And it's not weird. Anything, I mean, people dropping dead because somebody called them on the carpet, that's pretty weird. People healing the sick and raising the dead, that's pretty weird. But it's what God has put in the word for us to learn and to observe and to conform to. In Acts chapter 1, you see a really interesting thing. The, the, the communal lifestyle that they adapted in Jerusalem had some faults to it, even though all the good that was happening, in my opinion. Because they had been commissioned to go to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the other parts, the other end, the, the other uttermost parts of the world, Right? But somehow or another, they got all holed up and bottled up in Jerusalem. Things were so awesome. So many people are being healed and saved. So many miracles are going on. There ain't no poor. Well, why do we want to go somewhere else? And so in the midst of experiencing this outpouring of God, they actually weren't walking in complete obedience to what they had been commissioned to do. And so all of a sudden, you see persecution come on the church. And the Bible says that because of the persecution, the believers were dispersed throughout the world. And you get Philip showing up in a town in Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel. People begin to be born again. People begin to be healed. People are set free from demons. Even the witch doctors getting saved. I mean, it's just a manifestation of the power of God in the gospel being preached. But there's something that's not happening even in the midst of miracles and demons being cast out and people being full of joy. There was still uh, uh, something that was not being released because Philip in himself didn't have the authority to release it. And it says that Philip, or actually says it, and let me read to you. Chapter 8. We're in chapter 8. We're going to start in uh, verse 15, 14. Listen to what happens after this town is just being turned upside down by the, the gospel of Jesus through the mouth of Philip. It says in verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So 
I mean, that's an interesting thing when you think about what has happened and you have this statement about what hasn't happened yet. And the apostles came on a mission to release a greater grace into the life of these believers. I don't even know if that's the right way to say that. To come to release a pouring out of the Spirit of God, a baptism that they had not received, even though they had experienced awesome things up to that point. And they walked in there, and they began to lay their hands on people, and they began to see the power of God come out of them, and they began to see people baptized in the Holy Ghost. To the point that the witch doctor wanted to buy the gift and the ability to release that same thing. He got saved under the ministry of Philip and baptized. But when he saw what those guys had, he wanted that. What Philip had was sufficient enough to convince him, you've got more than I have. You got more power than I have. You have more authority in God than I have. God's with you. I want to be on your team. And he joined. But when he saw what the apostles had and the authority that they walked in, there was such a greater distinction of power that he tried to buy that. So you see that the authority that they had received from Father gave them, uh, they carried something in them that other people just did not have. And I do not believe it was because they were special, because we read enough about them to know how special they weren't. But there was something about the authority of God gifted to them that gave them the ability to move things that other people could not move spiritually. And and it's pretty amazing because you see, Paul understood his authority. In, in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians first 15, let me go there real quick and just read this to you. A lot of times, Paul actually writes more about these dynamics than, than the, the, book, the book of Acts and the other apostles address. He just actually recognized it, he owned it, and he spoke to it more than the rest of them did. And in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1... Verse 15, just, just read, hear this phrase. He's, he's talking to a church that he started. He established the, the elders in this church. He was there for about 18 months. He raised up sons and daughters there. He put the foundation in. I'm in 1 Corinthians. All right, 2 But he, he spoke in, in, in chapter 1, 2 Corinthians first 15, it says, And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. In another translation that says you could have a second grace. To pass by way to you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. He, he, he tells them, I intended to come see you so that I could give you more grace and more power than what I gave you the first time. You know, he, he makes that one little statement right there, but in that one statement, he's actually saying, I have the authority and the ability to give you more power to walk with. And it's not because 
of the perfect life that he lived, but it was because he had been ordained by Jesus Christ to be his apostle, his apostle to the Gentiles. And he understood that. He understood what that encompassed and what that gave him to give away. And he understood, you need me to come. Because if I come, I can give you something that's going to help you. And it wasn't pride that he was speaking from. It was understanding of the office that God had ordained him into. And he knew the role he was supposed to play in the family. And his desire was to fulfill that. But you see that if you keep reading in, in that 2 Corinthians, he actually tells you why he didn't go. He says in, in verse uh, in verse 23, listen to what he tells the church on why he didn't come. Moreover, I call out, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth, that we have dominion over your faith, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, and for by faith you stand. Now let me read in this other translation, because it says it a whole lot better. It says right here, but I don't want to imply that as leaders we coerce you or somehow want to rule over your faith. Instead, we are your partners who were called to increase your joy. And we know that you already stand firm because of your strong faith. So he, he actually tells them, I didn't come because I didn't want to come and have conflict with you because you showed me you did not have the desire to listen to the counsel that I had to give. And so instead of being able to come and impart to you a greater grace, a, a, a deposit of fresh power into your life, I could not come because I did not want to come in and have to dominate you in a situation you were not wanting to be dominated in and not wanting to give uh, surrender to the counsel that God was giving to me to you. So I just went somewhere else. And see, right there you see a real interesting dynamic of how true uh, a true apostle operates he doesn't walk in an authority that belittles the people that god sent him to he doesn't impose himself over them he doesn't walk in a degree uh, of of pride that makes him believe that i'm going to show up and everybody's going to kowtow to me and if you don't there's going to be consequences he actually is dressed in humility and love understanding that he does have something to give but if you don't have the desire to listen then i won't come just so we can't be in conflict because i know my judgments carry weight with god so it's better that i just let you sort life out for a minute and if you want the help of god that is in me for you then i'll come back but we're going we're going to find that out first because see the heart of an apostle is the heart of father why did Jesus commission those 12? Because he looked and saw sheep without a shepherd. He had the heart of a father for those people that were suffering and had nobody to take them by the hand like a good daddy and lead them in a way of life. And so he raised up sons to send to them. And he intended for them to go with the same heart that he had, which was love and compassion. He didn't send them to dominate and to rule over. I mean, he actually told them 12 at the table. 
The greatest among you will be the servant of all. You will humble yourself in front of others. You will make yourself naked of no account to wash the feet of other people. See, he was the plumb line. And he ingrained his heart onto them and, and transferred it into them. And he actually expected them to operate the same way with his sons and daughters. And you see Paul understood his position, his role, but you also see that he had the heart of God for those people. And he didn't want to fight with them. And so he said, it's better that I don't come. You know, so many times, because of the bad testimony of, of, the, of the people who are called by the Lord into these different offices are put before us, it makes us not want to have anything to do with any of these things. Because more times than not, what we see is people trying to prop themselves up uh, and promote themselves and use the children and the sons and daughters of God as a platform for them to stand on to be seen. When you look in the scripture, it's the complete opposite. You find Jesus bowed down at the feet, washing them. You see Jesus walking all night to be standing at the city gate when the widow brings her son out to bury. You see Jesus telling people, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm on a mission. He just gives a complete different example and you see the life of the apostles bearing out that example as they fulfill the calling of God. And see, when we understand this is what it looks like, that should be magnetic to our spirit. And we have to begin to reclaim these things that God has gifted to us in the church so that we can actually walk in the fulfillment of what he's asked us to be in this generation. We need godly authority. We need fathers in our midst who desire to see us advance into the will of God and advance into his blessing. We need fathers who look at us and say, I exist to see you get promoted. Not the other way around. And we need to allow the word of God to, to, to reconstruct for us how this is supposed to look. And understand that godly order brings godly blessing. But that ain't the way we've done it. Well, then we need to stop and think about that a minute. How well has that worked out for us up to this point? It doesn't mean that we haven't experienced anything, but there's just a, there's just a cap on it. And like my kids say, no cap. No cap. <laughs> Most older folks don't know what that is. I didn't need it until my kids taught me. No limits. <laughs> Another example of what an apostle looks like. In Acts chapter 11, you find Peter getting called on the carpet. In Acts chapter 10, he goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. He preaches the gospel to him. It's the first time that these races have ever mixed like this with the gospel. He goes in under orders of the angel of the Lord sent you know, by these messengers. They carried that. He went, went in these Gentiles' house, preached the gospel. The Spirit of God falls on them. They get baptized in the Holy Ghost. They get baptized. It's awesome. 
But the church in Jerusalem hears about this unprecedented act. And by the time he gets back to Jerusalem, they want to know what in the world were you doing with those Gentiles. We have never done that before. You come in here and tell us what was going on. And, and you know, that was a major thing for them. And what is so awesome is that you see Peter, and I wrote it down right here. It says that... Uh, It says you find uh, in, 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 uh, in 11.4, it says that when he was called on the carpet, he says, Peter gives us an example of what he would later write in Peter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, all of you be in submission one to another. It says when he, Peter, the great apostle, explained, this is me writing, explained it to them in order from the beginning, he explained it to them in order from the beginning to the end. So he actually realized even though I walk in this office of an apostle and I've been ordained to do this job and God just backed me he backed the words out of my mouth even though we ain't ever seen it before the proof is over there in the pudding he didn't answer that way he allowed himself to be questioned and he gave an answer to those people from the beginning to the end and he submitted himself in humility to the other apostles and believers to judge if his life was right or not. He allowed himself to be called into account. And you see just an amazing amount of humility on him, even though he had the right to stand there and say, you ain't questioning me. Go look at the church I just started. Go listen to people talk in tongues and prophesy. You can't call me on the carpet. It ain't my fault God didn't choose you to be special. I mean, he could have said a lot of things. I mean, that's how most of us would have responded. <laughs> you better step off. You see what I just did? I'm pretty sure my shadow hit another sick person on the way in the door. And you want to ask me what I'm doing? What are you doing? Well, I was over there getting people born again. That's how most people would have responded. But it is absolutely amazing to see the humility in which he handled himself. And I guarantee you that was an aggressive attack on Peter. It went against every fiber of, they, of their culture that they had been raised in. I'm telling you, that was not a nice exchange. I don't believe that. And I think he just submitted himself to him, them and just laid it out for them judge and when he did that they judged it to be right and they all backed off and let him be all right I think that's enough for tonight one of the things that's so amazing is that you find the apostles as the church begins to mature and it begins to move into the different stages of growth that we witness in the books of Acts you actually begin to see their roles begin to change a little bit. They started off going and preaching the gospel and healing the sick and casting out devils. And then the next thing you see is that they're actually in a position of influence over the family and they're, they're installing new foundational doctrine in these new sons and daughters of God. They're beginning to fix problems in the church and give counsel and solutions. They walk in humility. They begin to establish, Paul would later go and, and, and get these new churches born again and started, and he would actually establish elders 
to be over those families. And as he did that, you see him actually respecting the, the order that he himself had established by not walking in, in, in an overwhelming demonstration of power and authority against the people that he had put into place to govern those families. He respected them. Even though he had the right as an apostle to come in there and just shoot everybody down, when he saw that there was not an ear and a heart to hear, he just moved to the next place instead of damaging sons and daughters. And he would come back to them when they were ready to hear and receive the deposit of power that he possessed for them. So like I said, this is no way to be all-encompassing, but there's such a simplistic example of what this is supposed to be. Now, if that is such an easy thing to see and just reading down through some simple verses, then the question should be asked, why is that not present among us? Why is that not how we've chosen to operate? Why is that such a foreign concept to us? Why do we let the abuse and the perversion and the failures of one Judas deter the right in the will of God in the other 11. You know, Paul makes a statement in Corinthians, and he tells them, he said, you know, I might not be an apostle, this paraphrase, I might not be an apostle to them who are questioning me, but I most certainly am to you. You are the signature. You are the fruit of my apostleship. Paul wasn't con concerned about how other people outside of his field viewed him. Paul understood, I am sent to you. To you, this is who I am. In almost every one of his letters, he starts his letter by saying, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul ordained an apostle by Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was writing to the very people that God had sent him to and established him with. And so he, he, had the, he had the desire for them to understand, I have been sent to you. Thank you for listening to Company of Believers podcast. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to sow into this ministry, please go to www.companyofbelievers.com and select give. Thank you for listening.